one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening, church. How's everyone doing? Doing good? 2020 is upon us. I, I have the uh, honor and the privilege of welcoming up uh, Elder Phil Nicholas, who's going to be teaching God's Word tonight. I just landed on a plane two hours ago. And I was just telling someone earlier in the service as we were kind of preparing, it's amazing that we have such a great body of leaders, men and women that serve and care for the church. And it's a great privilege that I get to have a Sunday or two away. And I know that we're going to start the year on a really strong note tonight with the word that God has given Phil to share with us. If you don't know Phil, he's one of the elders here at Crossbridge Brickle, and he is I don't say this just because I'm, you know, introing him to come up, and he's probably mad that I'm going to say this, that he's like the most humble, godly, and knowledgeable man I know. He is an amazing, amazing man, and I know that God is going to speak through him, and I hope tonight that you open your heart to receive what the Lord is going to teach you uh, through his Holy Spirit as Phil delivers this word that God gave him to start 2020 off with a bang. You guys ready? All right, Phil, come on up, my man. You hated that, right? <laughs> yeah. oh. You're right. I'm really mad at you right now. Okay, guys. Uh, 2020. Welcome 2020. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted from uh, two weeks of parties and eating way more food than my body should be uh, able to uh, contain. Uh, but it was fun. But now I need to relax and go back to work. Okay? Um, so here we are starting 2020. I think a lot of us have made New Year's resolutions. A lot of us have already blown those New Year's resolutions. But the good news is that tomorrow is really the beginning of 2020, okay? At least that's what I hear. You know, I always tell my kids, uh, it's a cliche, I'm sure they get tired of hearing about it, uh, that today is the first day of the rest of your life. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. There's really nothing you can do about yesterday 
all the dumb decisions you made, the mistakes you made, the problems that you uh, brought upon yourself. And what a better time at the beginning of a new year, what a better time than on the first day of the rest of your life uh, to talk about uh, new beginnings. And not just any beginning, but the greatest beginning of all. And we're going to do that by talking about a conversation that a man named Nicodemus had with Jesus. And most of you know this story, but I think it's, uh, I think it's good to revisit this uh, from time to time. It happens to be one of my favorite passages. And, and Carter told me to pick one of my favorite uh, passages, so that's what I did. John chapter 3. Okay, so let's jump into it. Let's look at the story. Um, we have G- uh, Nicodemus showing up to see Jesus He's introduced to us as a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, you've all heard about Pharisees. You've you've seen Jesus get on their case in the New Testament as you read that. But the Pharisees were um, very law-abiding people. They were a sect of of the religion of, 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 of Judaism, and they were strict adherents to the law of God and to the oral traditions of the people. They would have felt no need, zero need, for any additional moral structure in their life. They felt they had it, and there was nothing that could be added to it. They considered themselves the absolute epitome of moral integrity. He was a member of, he was a ruler of the Jews, we're told. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the, like the Supreme Court of, uh, of Israel. The Sanhedrin was, had overall responsibility for the civil, uh, criminal, and religious matters of Israel. It was headed by a high priest. When Jesus, was, when Jesus was put on trial, he was put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. Highly re- respectable, very honorable, noble position. This was Nicodemus. We are told this man came to Jesus by night. Uh, John wants us to know it was night. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us. Why so? There's speculations as to why. Some people speculate it's because you couldn't get around Jesus during the day. He had too many people, too many crowds around him. So this was Nicodemus' opportunity to have a one-on-one with Jesus. Some speculate that, well, Nicodemus had to worry about his reputation, you see. Uh, Jesus was pretty controversial, particularly amongst the Sanhedrin, the, the religious elite of Jerusalem. So he needed to protect his reputation and come in the dark. Some people think that John is contrasting dark and light. He does that through the first three chapters of his book, uh, contrasting dark and light. Dark being uh, uh, the domain of sin, uh, spiritual unenlightenment, and light being uh, enlightenment. Knowing God and knowing Christ. So some think that's why John is emphasizing it was at night. Uh, we don't know. It's speculation. But these are all interesting reasons to think about. Now let's look at what Nicodemus came to say to Jesus. Why was he there on this particular night? This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that you come from God. First of all, who is the we that's being talked about here? Was it the Sanhedrin? Did the Sanhedrin know Jesus came from God? There were some members of the Sanhedrin that hated Jesus. They knew he performed miracles. They couldn't deny that. 
And they attributed his miracles to the power of Satan. So I doubt that Nicodemus was there representing the Sanhedrin when he said we. Was it a smaller group of people? Perhaps. Perhaps a smaller group of people. People that uh, found favor with Jesus or held him in, in esteem of some sort. And they concluded that, look, only someone that could do these miracles, uh, only someone like that would be from God. Or was Nicodemus using we as camouflage? Maybe what Nicodemus was really doing was saying, I know you come from God because of these incredible things you're doing. Maybe he was being drawn by God already. Well, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks after Nicodemus says this. You know, you would think that Jesus would jump in and say, you're right, Nicodemus, I am from God, and I have a message for you to hear. But he didn't say that. Jesus has an unusual response. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is this, um, something that the Jews longed for. They longed for that day when God was completely ruling the earth from Jerusalem. There'd be no more war. There'd be no more sorrow. There'd be no more blindness, lameness. All tears and suffering would be wiped away. And the rule of God would be in place. And Jesus was saying, Nicodemus... You cannot see the kingdom of God. You are in darkness, Nicodemus. You cannot know who I am. You cannot understand who I am or understand spiritual matters. The kingdom of God that you believe you see, Nicodemus, is beyond your sight unless you are born again. All of your efforts, Nicodemus, as a good Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of Israel, do not give you this sight. You must be born again. Imagine what Nicodemus was thinking. What? If anybody could see the kingdom of God, it would be somebody like him. A ruler of the Sanhedrin, a, a Pharisee. If anyone could see, who else but him? see. Notice that this verse starts off truly, truly. It's translation of amen, amen. We often see amen at the end of a prayer. But when it starts off here, truly, truly, it's meant to emphasize that what follows is really significant. And it's also meant to convey that the, the person making the statement has the firsthand knowledge and authority about what he's about to say. Almost like Jesus was saying, I know this firsthand, Nicodemus. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So just imagine what Nicodemus was thinking. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is confused. Nicodemus is so confused, he says something silly like that. He's thinking physically. He is thinking that Jesus is talking about something that he is supposed to do. How do I do that? We often default into that way of thinking. What do I need to do for God to love me? 
I think even some of the most mature Christians in this room default, maybe subconsciously, to that kind of thinking. All religions follow this mode of thinking, what they must do to earn God's love. Christianity is the exception. So Jesus was about to reveal something very radical to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has just asked, how can a man be born when he is old? Jesus does not come to his rescue. He doesn't step in and say, no, 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 Nicodemus, I'm I'm not being literal. Okay? He doesn't come to his rescue. He doubles down. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You're thinking of the flesh, Nicodemus. I'm speaking of the Spirit, and you may not enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Not only can you not see, not only can you not perceive, not only can you not understand the kingdom, you may not enter it. What? Nicodemus was looking forward to entering the kingdom of God his entire life. That's what he'd been working for. There was no question in his mind that he was going to enter. He had earned it. Imagine how Nicodemus felt when Jesus said that nothing he has done, nothing he has done, counts towards earning the kingdom. How do you feel knowing that nothing you do counts towards earning the kingdom of God? No matter how good you are, no matter how religious or spiritual you might be, you must be born again. The good news is this also means that you might be a miserable wretch. You you may have messed up your life so bad. You may be so broken. But no matter how broken or messed up you might be, you can be born again. This verse tells us we must be born of water and the Spirit. There's different interpretations of that phrase. Time doesn't permit me to go into all of them now. But one of those options, and I, I think it's interesting because Jesus later on gives Nicodemus some flack about knowing about this born-again thing. There's a verse in the book of Ezekiel, and perhaps this is a reasonable option, what is meant by water and the Spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart, and I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Sprinkling of water... The Spirit, born of water in the Spirit, perhaps. Whatever its meaning, this birth by water in the Spirit must happen to Nicodemus in order for him to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus then continues to emphasize to Nicodemus that being born again is something that Nicodemus cannot control. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This boggles Nicodemus' mind. He, he thought he was in control. Now Jesus is telling him he is not in control. That whether you are ever born again depends not on you, but on the Spirit of God working in you. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Nicodemus' world is turned upside down. And Jesus has a harsh critique. 
You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Perhaps referring back to the Ezekiel passage we just read. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Jesus would know about spiritual things. He would know all about the new birth, for he was from God. And he emphasizes his authority on these matters. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man more than he called himself anything. More than he called himself the Messiah. More than he called himself the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man. And only the Son of Man who came from heaven has gone into heaven. So only the Son of Man would know what it takes to be right with God. I want to read to you what Nicodemus would have understood the Son of Man to be. This comes from the prophet Daniel. Daniel had a vision. This is in the Old Testament. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He, the Son of Man, approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language served him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. <laughs> Nicodemus, I am the son of man. What I'm telling you, verily, verily, is true. So Jesus, tell so Jesus the son of man, tells Nicodemus a spiritual secret from heaven. He tells him what it means to be born again and exactly how it happens. He uses an, an analogy from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Nicodemus, being born again is just like that. Well, Jesus is referring to a story, the story in the book of Numbers. This story is the story that Jesus uses to tell us what it means to be born again. Uh, it's a small story, but oh, how important it is. Nicodemus would have known this story, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to read it, parts of it to you. The Israelites were wandering the desert after they had been delivered from Egypt. They had come through the Red Sea. They'd been given the law of God. They're eating manna that miracu miraculously appear on the floor of the desert every morning. And it says here that they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. I, I could see me saying that. <laughs> then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. 
They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. And Moses heard from God, and this is how God answered. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now I want you to imagine you're in the desert. You're out, you're out there in this desert, you're grumbling about the manna, you're, you're tired of this food, you're grumbling against God. And you start getting bitten by these snakes. Your family, your neighbors, you got three million people out there in the desert. And this is going on all over the place. What would you do? You're seeing people die. You've been bitten by a poisonous snake. What are you going to do? I mean, I've seen westerns. I've seen people get bitten by poisonous snakes. They use tourniquets. They get tourniquets, a belt or a piece of rag or something. They tie up their arm. Or maybe they get somebody that, you know, that starts sucking the wound on their leg. They get the venom out. I don't know. There's all these different things that they would do, I'm sure, these home remedies to try to take care of their problem. Imagine that you're one of those people. And somebody comes running up to you, out of breath. You live in the suburbs of this place. Out of breath. And they tell you that you need to stop what you're doing, stop using your tourniquets, stop having your cousin suck the venom out of your leg, whatever. Stop it. And you need to run across the desert as fast as you can. Moses has put up a bronze pole with a bronze serpent on it. And if you look at it, you'll live. I imagine there were a couple of reactions to that. I'm sure that some people thought that was the dumbest, most ridiculous, foolish thing they had ever heard. And they kept up their tourniquets and they kept up their cousin and whatever. But I imagine some said, Moses said that? I remember when he told us to put the blood on the doorposts when the angel of death came through. Okay, if that's what Moses said, okay, that's, let's go. And they stopped what they were doing. They stopped looking at themselves and they ran as fast as they could to look at this snake on a pole. Nicodemus, being born again is just like that. The snake on the pole is an analogy for the cross of Christ. You see, we all have been bitten by sin. We have its venom flowing through our bodies. We are doomed. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. I want you to imagine a tree planted by a river. And this river runs through the desert. And this tree, soaking up that water, thriving. But that tree gets a little bored. It's been sitting by that river for 50 years. And he's looking around kind of at that desert going, man, I'd like to walk around this desert. So he pulls out the roots from beside that riverbank. And he goes walking in the desert. Wow, look at this desert. How cool is this? Now, if that tree keeps walking through that desert, what's going to happen to that tree? It's going to die. Because when you separate yourself from the source of life, the consequence is death. And when we tell God, we're not interested in you, 
or we're interested in you kind of. I'm really interested in myself. We call that sin and idolatry. When we cut ourselves off from the author of life, the consequence is death. The wages of sin is death. Simply put, the reason Nicodemus cannot see and then we cannot see nor enter the kingdom of God is because we are spiritually dead due to our sin. Sin is the reason that all of us are incapable of seeing or entering the kingdom of God. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This applies to us all. Thus, Nicodemus needed, we all need, if we're dead, to be made alive again. We need to be born again. So someone comes running up to us and tells us about the cross of Christ. That he's been put up on a pole. And if we stop trying to save ourselves with our good works, our good efforts, our spirituality, whatever religion we think we got going on, our tourniquets, if we just stop looking at ourselves and we go to the cross of Christ and look at him instead for our hope, for our healing, we will be healed. We will be born again. This is what Jesus is telling us. But how is Jesus like that snake? I mean, if this is an analogy, we got a snake on a pole, we got Jesus on a pole, on a pole, on the cross. The snake, Jesus. Well, that snake was the embodiment of sin. It's what it represented, the embodiment of that venom, the thing that was killing the people. And what is killing us? Sin. Jesus became the embodiment of sin when he was lifted on the cross. Our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, something amazing takes place. Our sin is taken by Christ. He pays its penalty. God pours down his justice on his own son for us. From that moment on, all sin is paid. You do not surprise him. He knew all about you 2,000 years ago and before that, when Christ took your sin upon himself. You don't surprise him. He, when you're 50, like really old, like over 55, okay, 70, whatever, you don't surprise him. He knew all about you when he died for you. In exchange, and dying for us, for our sin, he gives us his righteousness, as if it's ours. And when God looks at us, no more judgment, because the penalty's been paid. It was all taken care of at the cross. Instead, he only sees the righteousness of his son. And I have good news, Nicodemus. You cannot earn it. It is a gift. For it is by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, so that no one can boast. And if anyone had any reason to boast, it was Nicodemus. He had something to boast about, for sure. At least before this day. Here's a real serious question. I, I think it's the most important question that you guys, that, I, that we can ever ask or think about. When you hear the message that the cross of Christ is your only hope, 
that you need to abandon your own efforts to save yourself and instead look to the cross of Christ for real healing, your only hope to be with God, your only hope to enter the kingdom of God? How do you react to that message? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So is this foolishness to you? You know, some of us don't even feel the sting of sin. Our consciences are seared. Pascal, the famous French mathematician, said that in all men there is a God-shaped void, a God-shaped vacuum. We spend our whole lives trying to fill it because we feel it. Maybe it's our careers. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's our religion, our spirituality, our possessions. It doesn't work. It never ultimately fills Well, we risk spending our whole lives doing that. Is the cross the power of God to you? Then if so, you have felt the sting of sin. You are horrified by it when it reels its ugly head in your life. You realize that only God can fill that God-shaped vacuum. And you realize it is only through the cross of Christ that this can happen. Praise God. Now, why would God do this for us? What motivates a God? I mean, Tim Tebow puts this under his eyes. and You know know this verse. It's the most famous verse in the Bible probably. For God so loved the world. Have you ever so loved someone? Not just love them, but so love them. When you so love someone, this sort of love is almost always sacrificial. He so loved her that he, she so loved her children that she, so to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love of the world is a so love because his son had to be condemned in our place so that we would not be condemned. Talk about love. Imagine without the son dying in our place, we stand condemned. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That sounds so harsh. This may sound narrow-minded to you. I'm sure it sounds narrow-minded to some people that you know in your life. But I assure you that if Christ was the Son of God, if he was the Son of man who died for you, there is no greater salvation. He's our only hope. My friend Jay Renardis, who is here, uh, wrote in his book, a little plug for Jay's book, uh, about um, 
a man who really was in love with a woman. And uh, this man was totally into sports, totally into sport, loved sports, loved watching it all day long, sports radio constantly, always talked about sports, fantasy football, everything. His life was sports. But the woman that he was in love with, her life was poetry. She loved poetry. That was her heart, poetry. This guy hated poetry. And he thought, you know, I just got to teach her sports. She'll love it like I do. Well, how successful do you think he was? Because, see, her heart is poetry. Well, the heart of God, God is a person. He has feelings, will. He is a person. The heart of God is his son. The way to God is through his heart. And the heart of God is his son. We try to put all kinds of other things in front of God as we think. This is the way to God. That's like you being the sports guy. It's not going to work. So where do you guys stand? You know, many of us know the other side of coming and looking at the cross of Christ. We have met the Lord. We have experienced great joy and new wisdom about reality. It's awesome. The God-shaped vacuum has been filled. Some of you have been Christians for some time, and you find yourself back in the desert, grumbling against God. Once again, seeking what the world has to offer, sending up a storm, and you hate yourself for it. I like this analogy of a pig and a horse. There's this pig, and he loves the mud. He loves it. He loves rolling around in the mud. I want you to picture that pig rolling around in that mud and getting up and just smiling. (laughs) Can't wait to do it again. He loves it. But one day, the pig becomes a horse. And that pig, who's now a horse, is running through the field. The wind's blowing through his mane. He's like, this is awesome. This is great being a horse. But one day... He remembers the pigsty. He remembers that mud. That, that mud, that was, that was, that was fun. That was, that was fun. And one day he can't stand it. And he goes racing back to that pigsty. And he does a leap over the fence. And he does a belly flop in the mud. And he's ro- that horse is rolling around in the mud. He's going, oh, the mud, the mud. I remember the mud. Then he stops. And he notices a couple things, things he's never noticed before. He notices that it doesn't feel like it used to. And something he definitely didn't notice before is he notices he's dirty. And he never recognized that when he was a pig. And there he is laying in the pigsty, and someone comes along and says, Hey, man, what are you doing in that pigsty? Your horse. Oh, yeah. Help me up out of here, will you? And he goes back to being a horse. Listen, you might visit that pigsty a lot, but don't forget who you are. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Some of you may just now be feeling the bite of sin, 
the God-shaped vacuum, and you are busily trying to offset the effects of sin through your own efforts and whatever the world has to offer. The message, get up, race to that pole, the cross of Christ. Place your hope in it. You will be healed and forgiven forever. Jesus rose from the dead to prove it. Finally, there are those that may be here who are indifferent to their sin. We're awfully glad you're here. This is the right place to be. But you're enjoying the pursuit of whatever the world has to offer you. The cross is foolishness to you. And I want, to, I want, I would, I want to, you to understand that the cross was foolishness to me at one point. So it is with everybody before they come to Christ. They might admire it from afar, but deep down they think they got this. They got this. They got this. If there's a God, he'll forgive me. In the grand scheme of things, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I got this. Pray that God would reveal his will to you. And if you have, if you have questions, get them answered. If you're here and that's, I just described you, that's okay. Get answers to your questions. So what happened to our friend Nicodemus? Okay, remember he was told the analogy that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He probably didn't connect with the cross. It hadn't happened yet. He didn't know what it meant that the, the Son of Man was going to be lifted up like that snake on a pole. But later... After Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Nicodemus has changed. He doesn't just come at night. He's full-blown carrying the dead body of Christ to the tomb with care and wrapping it with myrrh and aloes. He was willing to give up everything all of a sudden. His reputation, maybe his position, maybe his friends, maybe his family. But you see, I like to think that he was born again. So, today is the first day of the rest of your life. May we start afresh. May looking at Christ and His cross bring healing to you. May it fall on you afresh, or maybe, just maybe, may it fall on you for the first time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for this time together. I want to thank you for the privilege of diving into your word and, and seeing this simple story about Nicodemus and Jesus having a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Where you, Lord, with the authority that you carry as the Son of Man, revealed to him the secret on how to be born again. May we race to the cross, Father, if there's ever any doubt, where we find healing and refreshment. We thank you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.
Amen. What a way to start 2020, right? Wow. 